this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 21, and we are recording on Friday, September 27th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're the editors of BookRiot.com. Rebecca, happy Friday. Happy Friday, Jeff. And only a moron would ever say something like, I thought it would be a slow week in publishing, and... It turned out not to be because it, there's always busy, interesting news in publishing. Every idiot knows that. Um, so we've got a lot of stories to talk about. And we're kind of going to do a speed round this week, right? How does that sound? That sounds good to me. We have a bunch of stuff that I have a little bit to say yeah. about. And it looks like we're going to have a solid methodology corner yeah, here we'll, we'll, that'll later be in our, the show. Well, that'll be our first story uh, here in a second. But let's start with follow-up. Um, you want to go over this one? Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Oyster, which is a new Netflix style service for eBooks. You pay 10 bucks a month um, for your iPhone. You get unlimited access to the eBooks that are available in Oyster from participating publishers. And you and I are both pretty in love we are. Uh, with this service. It's fantastic. Uh, one of the things that we have heard from readers is that they wanted it on iPad. And Oyster had said that the iPad app would be rolling out in the fall. But we heard a lot from readers as well who were like, that's great, except that I have an Android. And I'm happy to uh, share with you that earlier this week, Oyster put out a job listing on their website that they are looking for an Android developer. So, so there we are. So there, I mean, that's not an official word, but, um, and we don't know how long it would take, but they're actively working on it. And at some point, those of you who are using a Galaxy phone or a Nexus, whatever, mm-hmm. um, or an HTC something, HTC One, I guess it would be, um, and use Android in your daily lives on your tablet or on your phone. Um, or I guess it could even be on your Nook too, right? I mean, those are uh, Android devices. I'm not really it's sure. Like a, the, it's sort of a select <clears throat> number of apps that uh, are available. In yeah, I'm the, guessing Barnes & Noble wouldn't store, be super so, excited about that. Yeah, I'd be surprised to see it there, but I'm... I'm happy to see that Oyster is doing this. And also, I think we can infer that it means they got off to enough of a running start with their launch um, that they feel confident that when they launch for Android, they'll have an audience um, and a subscribership there. So, yeah. so the, happy the, to see that. Good the, job, the Oyster. The clock is officially ticking on an Android client for uh, those of you who are interested in it. Okay. And now we have an awesome sponsor Yay. this week. We'll kick that off. Uh, this week's show is sponsored by Mindy Kaling's book, Is Everyone Hanging Out Without Me? and Other Concerns. Uh, you might know Mindy Kaling from her work on The Office and now The Mindy Project on Fox. And the book, Is Everyone Hanging Out Without Me? is sort of a memoir in essays. Um, most of them are very humorous about Kaling's many lives. Uh, she was the, or is the obedient child of immigrant professionals who uh, her parents hoped that she would also grow up to have have, you know, something of a traditional white collar professional job. Uh, but instead, she moved to New York and lived with a bunch of friends. Uh, there are some hilarious essays um, about her early days in New York living in an apartment like piled with other girls. Um, her early work as an aspiring actress and a writer and eventually how she broke into writing for TV and had success at the office. Uh, there are uh, the office, the show, not the office, a proverbial place. <laughs> there are uh, thoughts on friendship and dating and how you can dress your body if your body is not a model's body, which uh, hers is not and most of ours aren't, and uh, life in Hollywood. It sort of, uh, to me, felt like bossy pants for the younger set. Uh, oh, if you liked, good pitch. Yeah, if you like Tina Fey's um, memoir, Kaling's is funnier. Uh, I thought it was funnier than bossy pants, and bossy pants was pretty hilarious. And um you know what? Just a, a story from a woman who's had a lot of success, but is earlier in her success than Tina Fey was. So Kaling wrestles around with what it means to be, you know, a young woman in a professional setting that's uh, traditionally been dominated by men as writing for TV has. And, uh, 
also just sort of the the struggles of being a, a young professional woman who's living her life, trying to find a nice guy to date and to maintain her friendships and take the most flattering selfies possible with her <laughs> <laughs> with her cell phone. Uh, the book is a lot of fun. I I remember tearing through it in in one sitting on a trip uh, a couple uh, last fall, two falls ago when yep. it first came out. Uh, so I'm really happy that we're able to talk about it on the show this week. And thank you for sponsoring. It's is everyone hanging out without me and other concerns by Mindy Kaling and we'll have a link to it in the show notes for you and I was um, looking around about the book uh, when I knew we were going to have a sponsorship for it and mm-hmm. I saw she does the audio book herself which oh, I that bet would be, would be a lot of fun I can't vouch for that but she has a really quirky self-aware fun mm-hmm. smart goofy kind of uh, countenance and delivery and I think probably would make for an excellent audiobook. I can yeah, that, her voice is really present in the book, and you you sort of feel like she's writing the way that she speaks uh, as you read along. And so I would also jump on that bandwagon. I bet her audiobook version would be great. Yeah. All right, it's stats time. Stats corner. So the NEA um, yesterday, I think uh, I'm not sure if it's yesterday, the day before, but I saw it first yesterday. Released mm-hmm. their annual study on. Um, arts consumption in America. Yes. And I, of course, immediately skipped past music and plays and <laughs> pottery and basket weaving and interpretive dance and whatever, quilting, uh, to look at books, section two, reading books and literature. Mm-hmm. And this is right up our alley, wherever our alley is. This is driving a uh, Rolls Royce right through it. Right through the middle of our alley. Um, so there's a lot of good stuff here. Let's see. What's most, do you have, is, was there anything most interesting to you? You know, I think the big broad stats um, yeah. that they start with are really interesting. Like the percent of U.S. adults who read books and or literature in, in 2012, um, books not required for work or school right. was 55%, mm-hmm. uh, 45% read novels or short stories, 7% read poetry and Three percent read plays. Okay. Um, well, not uh, surprised to see novels and short stories dominating. Yeah. There. So I guess that means books are not required for work or school. Fifty-five percent. I guess that's the top level one, right? That's the. Mm-hmm. Um, not super happy about that, Shinsky. Got to admit, fifty-five yeah. percent. It's more than half. <sighs> <laughs> oh, that <laughs> was looking, adorable, half-full attempt. I'm uh, silver uh, lining searching yeah, over here. I guess here. it's more than half. <laughs> um, I mean, there's nothing to say about that except bummer. Um, yeah, so what number would make you okay. happy mm. there? Because, of course, like ideally that number 110%. is... 110%. <laughs> right, of course. Ideally I expect that Americans to give 110%. 100% of people reading books not required for work or school. I would like that, too, but I'm, I've been thinking overnight about what would make me feel good about the state of things? What number there could I live with? Because 55 is that's making me kind of sad, too. 66, two-thirds? Hmm. I still okay. wouldn't be happy, thrilled, but I don't know that I would bring on existential dread. Does uh, 55% give you existential dread? Well, that number alone doesn't, but segue time. Uh, if you go down to percent of U.S. adults who read at least one work of literature, mm-hmm. um, over, and this gives us historical data uh, going from 82, 92, 2002, 2008 to 20, 2012, 46.9% of U.S. adults uh, U.S. adults read a novel, short story, play, or poetry in 2012. Mm-hmm. That is down a statistically significant 3.3% from 2008 and down a whopping 9.5% from 1982. That's a sad trombone That's moment. not good. That's, that is I don't not like good. That. That don't, there, was an, there was an uptick so, in 2008 mm-hmm. over 20, uh, 2002 um, there was a weird bump of four, 3.8% in those six years, but then we're back. We're still above the low in 2002, apparently, but just right at it. So yeah, I guess there's, maybe there's the trend line's not down. Yeah, if it's I'm an interesting play the, fluctuation yeah. here. 56.4% of uh, U.S. adults read at least one work of literature in 1982. Then 10 years later in 92, it had dropped to 54.2%. Mm-hmm. And then the all-time low so far since 1982 is the 46.6% in 2002. Um, then back up to 502 yeah. in 2008 and now down. So 
the good news is we're not at the all-time low. Maybe things are just fluctuating. I mean, we could just be like bobbing <laughs> along the bottom of the f- ocean like floor here so a little bit. Here. I'm gonna. I, I've got a. I've got a wet blanket to throw on even that idea. Two, tw- 2012 was Fifty Shades year. That's true. And more people read that book than like anything ever in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. So that 46.9 percent could even be inflated. Sort of. That, yeah, that probably includes a lot of people who didn't read a book in 2011. Yeah. Uh, I have a guess about 2002's number. Yeah. Do you want to hear it? Oh, uh, wait. Let me guess. Uh, hmm. 2002, 2002, 2002. People were sad because of September 11th? That is my guess. Yeah. And we want to watch TV and eat yep. popcorn. And do That's those interesting. truly escapist things. That's uh, interesting. I, c- I could there see were, that. There were some really interesting pieces written, I think, in late 2002 or early 2003 about... Um, booms in particularly uh romance and like political thrillers yeah. in in that post 9/11 world um like immediate post 9/11 reading world has and and romance has sort of proven to be recession proof and apparently depression proof <laughs> um, that's interesting it, it is interesting but that that 46.6% that it, that's interesting and if we dipped that low in the percentage of US adults who read one work of literature um in the year after 9/11 we're hovering really close to that in mm-hmm. from the 2012 number and there's not a similar large-scale cultural explanation yeah. for it. I mean, I, I guess if I'm going to play Silver Linings um, uh, playbook for a minute, the in terms of percentage, from 1982 to 2012, it's down less than 10%. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so really, it's down less than 20% in raw numbers. Yeah. So if you think about 1982, that's pre-internet, pre-video games, as we know them, pre Really, I mean, pre-renting VHSs, seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so if you think about that through all of the invent of home movie watching, um, video console gaming, which got, I mean, I was right in the middle of that generation, 1988, the original Nintendo came out. Um, and then really 92 to 96, 97, the internet was getting into full swing. Mm-hmm. So after all of those changes and what people can do with their time, that literature reading is only down about 18% in aggregate, I guess maybe I would take that. I mean, with all the other things it has to compete with? Yeah, I, I'm wishing now that these stats went back further yeah, than right. 1982. Yeah, right, what it looked like, like in 1962. Right, what was the 62 number? Yeah. What was the 52 number when home entertainment options we're basic. We're much more limited to mm-hmm. TV, radio, and books. Yeah, um, we didn't all, you know, carry around little magical computers in our pockets. Um, let's look at ages for a minute because I okay. thought this was interesting. Did you look at this at all? I did. I'm scrolling now, looking for it. So we're using the same uh, metric: read at least one work of literature. Mm-hmm. Um, the highest overall age group was 65 to 74 year olds, 52 percent. Mm-hmm. The lowest was me. No, older than me. Mm-hmm. 45 to 54-year-olds, 44.6% had the lowest number, which mm-hmm. I was shocked by. I thought we'd see kind of a kind of a slow upward curve, really, and then maybe cresting down to 75 and over as people have trouble with their eyes and things like that. But I... I Pretty steady, 18 to 24-year-olds, 47.6%. 25 to 34-year-olds, 47.6%. Mm-hmm. 35 to 44-year-olds, that's me. Mm-hmm. Um, I am 35, is 45.1%. And then the the real cratering happens 45 to 54-year-olds, 44.6%. And then you get a significant uptick to 48.2% for 55 to 64-year-olds. Mm-hmm. So I guess as people are getting older, starting to retire... Kids are up and grown. Yeah. Um, I, yeah I, I guess maybe we just attributed the narrative of when you're 35 to 54, you're in the white hot center of, and I'm using you quite generally, your career <laughs> and kid rearing, I suppose. Yeah, demands on your time from are other just, people. Are just pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly has been true for me. I mean, I still read more than one a year, but in terms of total numbers, I read a lot less than I did when I was 26, 27. 
Um, that's for sure. Um, it's interesting to me that there's only a, a 0.1% difference between the 18 to 24 year old group and the 25 yeah. to 34, that it's uh 47.6% of 18 to 24 year olds and 47.7% of 25 mm -hmm. to 34 year olds. You know, a lot of those 18 to 24 year olds are, um, are reading for school. Um, and this is but just the red, this is out of school though, right? Oh, right. Well, yeah. it just says read at least one work of literature. I think they asked that it was for something oh, right. outside for, for something of else. worker school. Yeah. Um, I guess and then 25 to 34, you know, you're working, you're out of school, or maybe you're in graduate school, but mm -hmm. that's sort of the the beginning of that time period that you were just talking about of having lots of demands on your time from outside your own life, um, getting into a career. Yeah. So, and it's interesting that there's a little uptick there, but not a big one. And not, not a, a big one. Not a statistically significant one. And um, it's notable, I think, here that none of these patterns uh, in reading between various age groups um, had a statistically significant change at the 95% confidence level between 2008 mm -hmm. and 2012. There were a few uh, changes that were, and they were all declines that are yeah. significant at the 90% confidence level, um, which means they're 90% certain that the change was, uh, well, I don't know what they think the change is due to, but it's yeah, statistically it could significant. Just be variance. Um, yeah. The, let's do um, gender. Okay. Dudes, 36.9%. Mm -hmm. Ladies, 56.1%. Bad job, dudes. Bad job, dudes. Bad job, dudes. It's like but the difference in, man, these are big numbers. Yeah. In, in 2008, it was 41.9% of uh, men and 58% of women had, had read one work of literature. That's so guys all, I mean, are down 5%. Yeah, I mean, and it's sort of a 17% spread yeah. uh, in both time periods. Mm. This this is interesting. And and I'm kind of surprised that the, the male number didn't tick up, hmm. given what we, like, sort of given this cultural narrative that we have in publishing, at least, about men reading more because they buy, like, men are supposedly more into gadgets. And we did right. that. If you, we had the uh, If You Give a Dude a Gadget show a couple episodes back, and um, where we talked about that, that there's sort of this story that we're telling in publishing that um, there are lots of men who weren't readers before, or and they now have smartphones and iPads, and they like the gadgets, and somehow the gadgets have gotten them to start reading. So I guess maybe the flip there is that that could still be true and this decline would be bigger if we yeah, didn't have right. the gadgets if there's some um cushion to the mm -hmm. fall um yeah. i don't know if i buy that I, I i don't know yeah i'm not sure race and ethnicity um mm -hmm. so the highest um rate of reading literature um white folks 52.2 percent then others at 41.3 <laughs> Then African American forty point one percent, and then Hispanic at thirty one point zero percent. And I was thinking about this in terms of the macro scale demographics mm -hmm. between nineteen eighty two and now. We have a lot more Hispanic people. We do, um, and the access to Spanish language books is not great mm -mm. in America. So I'm wondering, I wonder how much, if any, of the overall decline can be attributed to just the change in raw numbers, yeah. being more Hispanic people. Um, are you talking about confounding variables, Jeff? Yes, I am talking about <laughs> confounding variables, right? Like if Spanish language books were just as available to Spanish speaking people as sure. English speaking books are to English speaking people, I wonder if some of that um, would have been uh, mitigated to some degree. I'm not sure. Yeah, I w I'd be interested in maybe comparing these numbers to a survey from Latin America mm -hmm. um, about how many people who you know, speak Spanish and live in Latin America where uh, Spanish language books are readily available and are prob the primary offering. Um, how many pr people there read yeah. at least one work of literature per year? I'd, I would be pretty confident in guessing it's higher than this. Right. Um, and then let's do one more of this. And this is the, um, the level of educational attainment, mm -hmm. which is, I mean, I, this is what I would expect. Yeah. The, the more education you've gone through, the more, you end up reading later on. Now it could be correlative, not causal, right? If you're the kind mm -hmm. of people who, who person who wants more education, you might be predisposed to read books anyway, but it's a pretty steady uptick. If you've only made it through grade school, um, only 16.9% of those people 
uh, read a work of literature in a year. Some high school, 22.8% high school graduates. So there's a 16% swing between just going to high school at all and graduating. Mm -hmm. There's a 13% swing between being a high school graduate and attending some college. Another 13% swing from some college to being a college graduate. So 50.3% of people who at least went to college um, but didn't graduate read a work of literature last year. And 63% of those who did graduate from college read a work of literature. And those who went to graduate school, 69.5%. And just the spread here is huge, even between high school graduates, 36.8%, and people who attended graduate school, 69.5%. That's a 33% difference just between high school graduates and people who attended graduate school, which is potentially just a difference of four or five years of education. Yeah, that's right. Um, And some college to college graduate is, what, three years difference in education mm -hmm, results in a a 13% spread. Yeah, this is, I mean, I think this category is the one that's probably really rife with confounding variables, like the one that you mentioned that people who who are inclined to read more are also probably inclined to go to to graduate college and to finish graduate school. They Mm -hmm. um, enjoy that kind of activity, but also um, if you looked at the way that income and disposable time, uh, free time and leisure are correlated with levels of education, if you've attended graduate school, your income is more likely to be higher. You have money to spend on books, and you likely um, have some downtime as well. You're not well, working three. You're not working three jobs to pay the bills. Your identity might be more wrapped up in reading sure. than um, otherwise. And all, but I should say that all categories were down from 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, graduate school um, people who have graduate school education suffered the smallest, both by percentage and overall number decline. Um, the greatest decline looks like came from some high school, Mm -hmm. the people that just had some high school education down 12% from 34.3% to 22.8%. And there, there are a lot more interesting statistics to be found here. We'll drop the link to uh, the full NEA, which is the national endowment for the arts report into the show notes and you can nerd out on them. All you want. One last Those one. Will, one last oh, one. Oh, one we'll, last we'll one. Just this can't the, say goodbye. Yeah, I can't. I can't. There, there's corner. a pie chart, and I'm being uh, I'm ensorcelled. <laughs> um, percent distribution of U.S. adults who read more than one book by type mm. in 2012. Twenty-three mm-hmm. percent uh, of p- people fiction only. Nineteen mm-hmm. percent of people nonfiction, and fifty-eight percent of people both. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So that's a, that's an interesting little mix. I'm happy to see that more than half are reading fiction and nonfiction. Yeah. Not that there's like a value. Well, yeah, not that there's a value judgment there. I just <laughs> there think is, variety. You know, except the, there's totally a value judgment there. Yeah. Diversity is good. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, this is sort of follow-up, actually. Penguin okay. in Overdrive. Um, yes. Tell me about this one. Uh, so we've we've talked several times on the show about the challenge that public libraries face in getting um, access to ebooks to lend to their patrons, and sort of how pe- publishers have been struggling to figure out the right way to do this. And now, um, nearly two years after pulling its books from OverDrive, which is the uh, the online service and app that most public libraries use to lend ebooks, Penguin has returned. Uh, they signed on um, to bring 17,000 Penguin titles back into public libraries. Um, and it's a significant shift that has happened in the wake of the Penguin Random House merger. Uh, and it looks like this Penguin deal does not follow the same model that the Random House model mm. has followed. So there are, there are a lot of details here in this piece, but the overarching follow-up story is that this is good news. Good job, Penguin. Uh, good job, Overdrive and libraries for for starting to work it out. We get that ebooks are different from physical books, or at least that you think that they are, um, and right. how they should be lent to patrons and how they should be managed. But happy to see um, Penguin acknowledging that this is a reality of our reading lives and that um, people want access to ebooks from their public libraries, and Penguin is taking steps towards working it out. Well, we know the stalemates or the various stalemates couldn't go on forever. Right. Um, so that's that's good news. Um, let's go to bad news. Oh no, bad news. Uh, this is something we've we've sort of long suspected, um, mm-hmm. though we don't we never really knew how it would work. But um, 
on the website Dear Author, which is a rom- romance review blog. Um, yes. They also do a lot of publishing news. We like them. Follow them if you're into romance or just book news in general. Yeah. DearAuthor.com. DearAuthor.com. Um, there's this website called Fiverr, F-I-V-E-R-R, that basically you you can put um, tasks you're willing to do for five bucks on there, and people can decide if they want to pay you five bucks to do it. Um, and one of the authors from uh, Dear Author saw this and saw that one of the uh, services being offered was for five dollars, I'll leave a five star review of your Kindle ebook, purchase it up to ninety nine cents, like it, and vote down negative reviews. And so she went through the process of trying this with an ebook, mm-hmm. and it worked. Yep, says eight hours later. I checked my ebooks page on Amazon and there it was, a glowing five-star review, four paragraphs in length even, and it appeared that the reviewer had actually even read the ebook. Uh, it, so we have an author here who agreed to go undercover yep. uh, for Dear Author and check this out. Um, and then this author clicked on the reviewer's name, this reviewer that they hired, and saw that the reviewer had written dozens of other five-star reviews. Nah. Um, all were for self-published books, and every single one of them was rated five stars. And um, she even recognized one of the authors on the list as a self-published writer whose ebooks regularly hit the Kindle top no. charts. Uh huh. So I, I've seen speculation that about a third of online reviews, just yeah. all online reviews from Amazon and elsewhere, are fake um, mm-hmm. for some reason or another. Maybe because your mom wants your book to sell well and she goes onto Amazon <laughs> and reviews it. Um, but wait, and, would and you we, consider that a fake review? I mean, I don't know. I guess it's maybe there's not a bright line between fake yeah. and authentic. Um, Hard to say. Hmm, certainly not objective. Right. Uh, then what is well, right? That's true. Um, that. But I'm, I'm entertained by widening the conversation beyond books. Like a third of all vacuum cleaner reviews yeah. on, like on Amazon. Well, this is be... Yelp and TripAdvisor. Sure. And I kind of feel like maybe, and maybe it's the Goodreads thing that happened last week too, where I'm souring on the whole crowdsourced review pool situation. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm just not that interested, I guess, um, in what, everyone has to say mm-hmm. i think somewhere was, between like just consumer reports and everybody i think is where i want to live yeah this is i mean this is why i love twitter and i love yeah the, like the communities that we have at book riot as well because it's sort of a like you curate your own mm-hmm. your own tribe of recommenders um basically from from people that you trust and I, I, like six months or a year ago when the stats were first coming out about the estimated percentages of online reviews that were fake, um, I tweeted something like, I just can't even believe that people are number one that shocked by it or number two that they care that much because I can't remember the last time that like that I went on, you know, Amazon or any like large consumer review place to help me determine what to buy. You know, when I'm when I'm shopping for books, I'm like talking yeah, for to, books for certain, but like yeah. It's things like, um, I don't know, vacuum cleaner. Well, I yeah, do vacuum look at those in aggregate. I would look and, right. and like TripAdvisor, I look at hotel reviews. Or when I'm traveling, I look at Yelp. But for books, I was really surprised because I, I live in that little bubble of having right. like a curated tribe of people where I, I might email you and say, you, you know, you read this book. Do you think it's up my alley? Or I would ask on Twitter or ask my friends on Facebook or the Book Riot contributors and community. And I just forget that a lot of readers do rely yeah. on on reviews on sites like Amazon and Goodreads. And so to find out that a lot of them are fake and that you can purchase a five-star review um, that the average person wouldn't be able to tell is fake or would have no reason to suspect is deeply troubling. Yeah. And it's and it's a bad apple spoils the barrel situation, right? Because I hear twenty, thirty percent is fake. Then you don't. I mean, I guess I and, don't know what percentage of fake reviews would be like. Ah, but that's still usable data. It seems to me like twenty or thirty percent fake reviews. Especially, I guess you know what I would do is I would probably, if I was really looking at some product to buy, and I was seriously looking at user reviews. I'd probably kind of do like they do in the Olympics. They sort of get rid of the high score and the low score. <laughs> right. And you sort of look at the sort of the fat middle of what you do the, the average. regression toward the mean. Yeah. Thing. But then some of these self-published titles and some other published titles, I, I wouldn't, you know, that's, I'm not just saying that, that traditionally published authors are somehow morally immune from this sort of behavior. But, you know, if it's a self-published title that only has five, five-star reviews, I don't like that. I'm 
Yeah, it, I just it, it, that's hard to. It makes my you know little suspicious radar yeah. go off, and 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 like you said, it's not that um, traditionally published authors are immune to it, or that self-published authors are somehow you know morally uh, compromised, but. Right. But self-published authors don't usually have access to the kind of publicity machine that a traditionally published sure. author does, and so they are they're looking struggling for what's and they're available. Look, they're looking yeah. for what's available, and um, a five-star uh, review for five bucks is a thing that's available and that is affordable. And I can certainly understand the temptation there. Um, the one thing I was thinking about is if this, when this author clicked on the reviewer's name and saw dozens of other five-star reviews. I wonder if any of those five-star reviews are genuine or if all of them are I guess fake. you have to like, assume they're all fake, though. And you would have to, but right. are, um, I wonder how often that five-star rating actually overlaps with the stuff that, that the reviewer enjoyed. How often does it feel genuine for her or him to give the five-star review? And yeah, it's just I don't a, know. It's just a shame to have that compromised as well, that what could be a, a genuine response to a book is now... Or they have a different account for their like actual oh, self. Um, uh, and also, I guess cracking the Kindle Top 100 is a thing that yep. a lot of um, that a lot of authors are looking for because it it gets you favor in Amazon's algorithm right. um, that recommends your books to people who are searching and helps it turn up. And people uh, use those and, lists. And people do use those That's top right. 100 lists, and so it's interesting to know that a an author who regularly turns up on that top 100 list um, also appeared at least in this one. A fake reviewers collection of reviews uh, with a with a list there or a uh, mention there. So you got to wonder. I wonder if a five star review is worth five bucks for if you're a self published author or like how many of them do you need to move the needle in the algorithm? I well, wonder. so if your self published ebook is on Amazon for ninety nine cents or a dollar ninety nine. If you published it with Amazon, you get seventy you cents. You get seventy bacon, cents of every dollar. Sixty-nine percent, yeah. Right. And if you published it elsewhere, but you sell it on Amazon, you get thirty cents of every right. dollar. So if it's a ninety-nine cent ebook, you've got to sell eight of them, seven yeah, or eight of them. You've got to sell seven or eight of them to or get sell enough of them. Then you get onto that one hundred list, and maybe mm-hmm. you get a, a boost from that. And Amazon's rankings and like their stats are are really interesting. Um, yeah. A year or two ago, a friend of mine who had published a novel sold um, sixteen copies one night overnight, and selling sixteen copies bumped her up like sixty thousand spots. Sure. Yeah. Right. On Amazon. Well, but that might be sixty thousand spots from three hundred fifty thousand to two hundred ninety thousand. I mean, because I, you know, right. like. I think as you get towards the top, um, there's a lot a more tougher. friction in terms of volume to, to move it. I I have not seen anything about on average, you know, how many copies you've got to sell, yeah. you know, in a week to break into the Kindle top 100. I don't know. Well, if it's that like number all bestseller exists. lists, right? That's all voodoo a, that they don't tell us anything art, about. The voodoo um, that you do. Yeah. All right, let's move on to what surely will be the white elephant gift of the Christmas <laughs> season. Um, Fifty Shades of Grey Wine. I am so surprised that this hasn't happened sooner. It does seem um, <laughs> that it could have happened before. Auth- uh, authentic, um, official. This is official E.L. E. James, James enjoy, uh, endorsed. Sanctioned. Yeah, it has her signature. It's 50shadeswine.com. 50 is spelled out. Uh, you can Google it or we'll put it in the show notes for you. There are two choices. You can have red satin or white silk. Uh, both are blends mm-hmm. and apparently E.L. James uh, enjoys wine. Uh, I don't know enough about wine to know anything about this, but um, I did read 50 shades of gray. And so I know that wine plays a role in a few scenes um, in that same, like, let me wine you and dine you. Nah, and then, I'll, then I'll tie you up uh, <laughs> way. <laughs> and, and Christian gray threatens. Uh, we have to, to read her official blurb on the yes. wine. Wine plays an important part. In Fifty Shades of Grey, reflecting the sensuality that pervades every encounter between Anastasia and Christian. I've always had a penchant for good wine, so helping to create the blends red satin and white silk felt like a natural extension of the Fifty Shades trilogy. I hope all of you curl up with a glass to savor the romance and the passion. And the deep frustration that there's at least a hundred pages between every naughty scene in this book. <laughs> all right. Well, it's 18 bucks a bottle. Um... 
You, and you can go purchase it now. FiftyShadesWine.com. <laughs> is a thing that exists. God, it looks terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so bad. Yeah. I want, uh, I want someone who knows things about wine to buy some. It looks like that stuff it. you can buy at the convenience store that's like wine product, Chateau Diana or whatever that stuff is. You, you know, know what I'm talking about? I wonder, this is like wine for people who don't drink wine in the way that Fifty Shades of Grey turned out to be a book that a lot of people who didn't But wait a minute. Hold on a second. <laughs> I thought that's what like Franzia was. We already have this stuff. Fifty Shades of Grey wine should totally be in a box. Yeah. Yeah, well, or, you know, handcuffed to something. Um, so anyway. You can handcuff yourself to the bottle, Maybe we I should guess. have a testing. We no, should that's have not, a I, testing. I, I don't mean that. Why am I, why am I even saying this? <laughs> Readers, listeners, if you, if you go to 50shadeswine.com and you buy yourself the 50 Shades of Grey wine and you test it. And, leave and, us you, a, and you send us a review. We'll put it in the show notes next week. I guarantee we will share you that. It. Please let us know about your experience with red satin and white silk. Oh, and you baby. know what? This just begs for a Fifty Shades of Grey chocolate line. Well, let's, let's just like, do it all. Like, Fifty Shades not? of Grey luggage. Oysters. Fifty <laughs> Shades of Grey um, silverware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. There's definitely an automotive line to be done here. <laughs> Christian Grey drives a fancy car. He also has a helicopter. Uh, hair <laughs> products. Hair coloring products. <laughs> Fifty Shades of... I once was gray. You know, um, there's even a reference to feminine hygiene products in the book. So let's do it all. Why I say not? bring it all on. Uh, you know, all right. more power to no, you, E.L. James. <laughs> enough of this. Let's talk about something that I have many feelings. You have to talk about this because I don't watch Breaking Bad. Are you going to spoil it for me? I don't understand. I don't want to click sp- the link. Okay, I'm not going to spoil it for you. I'm really going to um, try to forgive you for not having watched Breaking Bad yet. But um, oh, that's very magnanimous. <laughs> I feel. Better. I know. I really. I've been working on that, yeah, Jeff, and okay. I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to get. I'm going to get over it soon. Um, it would be really fun to talk about Breaking Bad with you. Uh, but so Breaking Bad ends this Sunday. Uh, by the time that the show is out and you are listening to it, it will already be over, and I may or may not still be like curled up in the fetal position somewhere. Uh, we'll see how Sunday goes. But there's a very well-known scene uh, from a previous season where Walter White, the main character, gives this speech to his wife that has become known as the I am the one who knocks speech. And uh, McSweeney's, which is a terrific um, online literary magazine that does a lot of great humor, has published a piece today that is Walter White's I am the one who knocks speech as written by other authors. Here are a few of my favorite entries. Ernest Hemingway. I knock, Walt said. That was all. (laughs) And here is <laughs> here is Dr. Seuss. Also, this is like a super menacing thing. His uh, his wife has just in the show discovered some things about what a bad man he is, and she asks if they're in danger, and he basically tells her that he is the danger. Uh, scary things aren't going to come to their door because he's the one who knocks. Um, so here's the Dr. Okay. Seuss version. What do you think that it could be? A horse? A cow? A tree? A bee? You silly lady, don't you see? There is just one hand that can knock. It's not a whim dingler come out of its flock, nor a whack zinglet in a tick-tock clock. It's a human hand, and it's on a spree. That hand is free and belongs to me. (laughs) (laughs) And and then there's F. Scott Fitzgerald. Oh, no. All right, come on. Hit me with it. He glared into the vast obscurity of her eyes with an aggressive intimacy. He needed to hold on to this dream for which he'd paid so dearly. Are you worried about me, dear girl? Don't worry about old Heisenberg. He's the fella who knocks. (laughs) Old sport. Oh, wait, wait, one more. Toni Morrison. Okay. Into the fading lights of his wife's shuddering eyes, he stared. Knocking. Answering. Death. So if you have seen Breaking Bad, that will make a lot more sense to you than if you have not. If you haven't seen Breaking Bad, watch it all and then check out the McSweeney's link, which will be in the show notes. But, you know, I just maybe think everything should be rewritten in Dr. Seuss. We had Fifty Shades of Grey written in Seuss a couple of weeks ago. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Highly entertaining. It makes everything seem a little easier to deal with if it's rewritten it, as Dr. Seuss. Maybe we have some Supreme Court decisions rewritten <laughs> as if Dr. Seuss were to have written. More people would pay attention That's to them. That's probably true. That's probably Certainly. true. Uh, but uh, I, I love that crossover between TV and books um, and happy to see that happening for Breaking Bad. 
Um, speaking of getting more attention. Yes. MacArthur Genius Grants came out last week. And we got two writerly folks. Well, a lot of these people have written things, but two mm-hmm. novelists, so to speak. Yeah. Um, Karen Russell, who we know well. Yes. Um, we talk about on the site a lot. Um, Love she Karen has Russell. written, I guess, Swamplandia was her novel. Mm-hmm. St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves was is her, her first short story collection. collection. And her most recent collection is Vampires in the Lemon Grove. Mm-hmm. Um, if you asked me to, if you had asked me to guess, give me a list of like ten people that I thought might be in the running for MacArthur, I would have put Karen Russell on there. Yeah, for sure. And previous literary winners include Gino Diaz and Colson Whitehead. So sort of the like the younger, yeah, uh, up experimental, experimental kind of doing different stuff. Yeah, and Karen Russell just owns her weird so yeah. well. Um, I mean, it's I'm, not also I'm not, not a shock. She was on the. 35 under uh, the five under 35 a couple mm-hmm. years ago. Um, but the, so she's great. And if you're into, you know, literary fiction with a twist, Karen Russell is your lady, uh, one of many ladies. And I guess maybe I think I would recommend vampires in the lemon grove of those three. Ooh, what do you I think? would do St. Lucy's home for okay, girls well, raised by wolves. Right. So avoid. I think it's more, <laughs> it's more, <laughs> uh, yeah. So St. Lucy's home for girls raised by wolves, I think is just an incredible debut collection. And it's, I think it's much more even vampires in the lemon grove has my all time favorite Karen Russell short story, but see that's, I like, is, I'll, I'll, take the, I'll take the highs and the lows. I, I okay. prefer the highs and lows than evenness. But anyway, that's, uh, Anyway, so Karen Russell. And the other one is a guy I'd never heard of. Uh, I haven't either. I'm so glad you hadn't heard of him. Donald <laughs> Antrim, I guess. A-N-T-R-I-M, mm-hmm. who is a novelist um, and essay writer. Um, he's a professor of creative writing at Columbia. And I guess he is um, a little even more experimental than Karen Russell, maybe less whimsical, to put mm. it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like his 2000 novel, The Verificationist, recounts the ramblings of a group of psychoanalysts in an all-night restaurant. Huh. Okay. All right. Um, in The Hundred Brothers, 1998, Andrew creates a circumscribed fantastical world in which a gathering of brothers at their ancestral estate exposes the comical yet destructive manifestations of masculinity, simply rivalry, and familial disintegration. That's a lot of things. Uh... Let's see. His most recent novel um, was Elect Mr. Robinson for a Better World, which I don't know anything about. It came out last year. Okay. So, Karen Russell, it's interesting about MacArthur Awards. Um, I think the idea is that you get some money to do stuff you couldn't do otherwise because they think they want more out of you. They want you mm-hmm. to do more stuff, right? That's yeah. the, I think... Now, this guy, I don't know. I mean, I don't think he's making a bunch of money off his books. If you and I haven't heard of him, that's not a super good sign. I mean, that's not saying we haven't heard of everyone who's making a good money, but if it's literary fiction especially, you mm-hmm. and I usually have, have yeah, at least that's, crossed that's our radar. Yeah, that's the wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, Karen Russell seems to be doing okay. Now, yeah. I don't know. I don't know, though. I don't know. Um, but this guy, um, I, does this make you want to check out Donald Antrim, or does, or does it not? You know, I'm curious. Um, I like... But, I mean, just my personal taste, I like that sort of experimental fiction thing. Yep. But when it crosses from um, I'm doing something cool to see what will happen into I'm doing something weird just for the sake of doing something right. weird, I, I sort of bristle mm-hmm. at that. It just doesn't quite work for me. I don't know where Donald Antrim lies on that spectrum. Um, but I would I'll probably go like stare at the synopses online a little bit and and decide Here's Elect um, Mr. Robinson. In the seaside community of Donald Antrim's Elect Mr. Robinson for a Better World, the citizens are restless. The mayor has fired stinger missiles into the botanical garden reflecting pool, and his public execution was whoa. a messy affair. <laughs> so okay, I'm interested. The New Yorker called it a dark suburban fantasy, richly funny, even whimsical, and bizarrely... F- you know, maybe they're it more like good. Karen Russell it's, than, yeah, than it I think. Sounds, it sounds like a, like the love child of Tom Parada and Karen yeah, Russell. Yeah, maybe. Or a little bit of like George Saunders and Pynchon mm. mixed. I don't know. I... Having not read it, this is now playing a complete shell game of association. But <laughs> Now we're just guessing. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> um, I think the MacArthur's one, I mean, come on, 625 grand just to do whatever is awesome, right? So yep. that's always interesting. That's, but they, and that's way more than most literary writers get The Nobel is, what, $1.2 something like that, dollars. Um, so, 
Yeah. This is, I think all these people are Americans. You know, I'm not sure if the so, MacArthur's limit to Americans. I, that's something I've never figured out. But this is one I pay attention to. Of all, of all the literary prizes you can get, I'm, none of them are mm-hmm. a guarantee I'm going to check out your book. But this one, I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. I always think that when I see the MacArthur. Yeah, I have to up. say, since you pointed that out, like, I, I don't always care really about like who won the National Book Award or right. about what won the Pulitzer. Um, those like for some reason the pools of the books that get choose yeah. that get choose they I get choose yeah. <laughs> they get choose uh, books that get chosen for those just don't always strike me as interesting. But the MacArthur folks are always looking for somebody who's doing something new and creative. And um, those you know I've had good luck reading MacArthur Genius winners in the past. I have a question. They're not going to be boring. That's what I found with MacArthur right. Genius. They're not, not going to be, be sort of middle of the road, um, good literary fiction. You know what I'm talking about. Are you reading anybody lately that you think might be a future MacArthur winner? Mm. I've been sitting here trying to think, who else do I read that I would like to see get this, like this particular? I think Victor Lavalla. Do you know him? Mm, I, I don't do. know how you say his last name. Lavelle. Laval. Laval. Lavelle, Lavelle, Tell us, listeners. Uh, Victor, L-A-V-A-L-L-E. Mm-hmm. Um, and he writes uh, literary fantasy. Have you read any of his stuff? I haven't. Yeah, okay. Um, I've read some, I think, some short uh, pieces all of, of his. All the, the novels are escaping me, but there's one, the one I read was about ghosts and phantoms. The Devil and, in Silver is Yeah, the I read the one. one before that. Dang it. Um, okay. Anyway, so that's one. Um, hmm. That is a good question. What about our, our friend a, uh, Charles Yu? Oh, yeah, Charlie no, he's not our friend, sure. but we like him. <laughs> um, he seems to, that would be a good fit. How to Live Safely. In a Science Fictional yeah, Universe. Yeah, yeah. Our, our online friend. Our online yeah, friend. Yeah, How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. And uh, Sorry, Please, Thank You is his short story mm-hmm. collection. Yeah, he does interesting things. I was thinking um, Manuel Gonzalez, who had yep. a short story collection out last year called The Miniature Wife. Uh, he does really interesting, weird stuff like in the title story a a scientist accidentally shrinks his wife in a sort of honey i shrunk the kids weird moment but then really crazy things happen to them and yeah and in another story a plane gets stuck uh circling over a city like forever um for years they just circle over this city in a holding pattern. And forever like, they live is a super there. long time. I've had, been on those crazy. flights. I've been up there forever. I know. I, know I can't feels. fly now without, <laughs> I can't fly now without thinking about like, what if we got stuck up here and these were like, I had to talk to these people for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> He's creative think. and fun. You know, I wouldn't mind seeing like, um, hmm. I mean, Margaret Atwood seems like a person who should win a MacArthur, but they tend to give them to younger folks. What if, I was thinking and she's not American, some of the most interesting stuff I've seen recently, um, uh, Matt Fraction's uh, Hawkeye comic book series, mm. I, um, which mm, is yeah. really interesting, or Brian K. Vaughn's Saga. They're doing some oh, really Brian interesting stuff. Yeah, Saga, yeah. for sure. Though he has like movies and TV deals. So I, I, don't, I don't know how much of the financial piece really goes into the MacArthur stuff. Like, mm-hmm. do they really think, you know, this person, if we give them this money, we're going to see more good stuff from them? Or is it, you know, I don't know what, I'm sure it varies from, uh, it varies case by case. Because Brian K. Vaughn, I think, is still going to be doing awesome stuff, whether or not he wins that. Um, let me try to think. Anybody else come to mind? Who did that, a serious since we're talking about comics, Asterius Polyp. I thought that was really... Oh, um, David Kelly, yeah. who's been around for a while. Uh, that doesn't mean anything necessarily. Um, yeah, that's an interesting one, too. What about, like, Alison Bechdel? That'd be a good one. That'd be a good Ooh, fit. That would um, be a good fit. A graphic novelist. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be a really good fit, actually, it seems to me. I don't know. I guess I'm just think, trying to think of, like, young, weird literary fiction writers. Um... Well, we, you know, we like Max Berry. That's an interesting one. Her lexicon might be good. Oh, oh yeah. Max Berry. Yeah. Um, hmm. I would like to give Max Berry lots of dollars to keep doing (laughs) interesting things in fiction. All of his books have been. Yeah. All have been pretty interesting. Creative and weird. Um, okay. Well, that's, so that's anyway, back to, that's Karen Russell and Donald Antrim, I guess, is how we're going to say that until mm-hmm. we're proven differently. And if you have thoughts about other writers that should win the MacArthur, you can email us at podcast at bookriot.com. We'd love to hear it. All right, let's do author birthdays. Um, couldn't be more different this week. Let's start with Anne Rice, who Ooh. was born October 4th, 1941. 
both, I mean, so many of these people I pick for these have interesting lives, but two particularly interesting lives. Anne Rice was actually, her first name when she was born was Howard, named after her, her father. Her, she was named Howard? Her first name was Howard, yeah. Is um, Anne her middle name? No, Anne was nothing. Uh, Who names her, a girl Howard? Well, the, the, the story goes is that um, her mom wanted her to have her father's name. Um, and rather, and there was no, you know, like um, feminine version of Howard, you know, Howette. Sure. That doesn't sound super awesome. <laughs> it's not like uh, Roberta. Yeah. So they thought, you know, we'll name her Howard and she can deal. Um, but she went, she started going by Anne because her first day of Catholic school, the nun asked her her name and she was too embarrassed to say Howard. So she, she said Anne. And she's been Anne ever since. <laughs> that's a good story. So that's Anne Rice, born October 4th, 1941. Interesting of, from the very start. In an interview of a vampire, which she wrote in uh, 1976, was her first novel and breakout success. Cervantes, Miguel Ooh. de Cervantes, born September 29th, 1547, over in Spain. That's so old. Yeah. Um, Cervantes had a life that you wouldn't want to have lived, but you want to read about. Um, he was a man about the world, always struggling, got in bar fights. He got shot one time and lost the use of his left arm. But my fact for you is twofold. The first is that he um, signed on to be um, part of the Spanish, essentially merchant marines, and was taken captive. I'm not, I don't know why I'm laughing, except that it's crazy, it's by awesome. Corsairs. Um, in the, on, the, on the high seas and was forced to work as a slave for five years <sighs> in Algiers. And he tried to escape several times and was finally ransomed five years later. Another interesting thing about Cervantes is he didn't write Don Quixote until much later in his life. And it was in two parts. So if you go into a bookstore or you find one online and you see a Don Quixote, that's actually two volumes that, that appeared several years apart, the second volume. And in the second volume, um, Don Quixote was a, a big hit. And there were some copycats. Not even copycats, just people trying to horn in and saying they were Cervantes. And writing Don Quixote novels in his stead. And in the second volume of Don Quixote... Don Quixote and Sancho Panza encounter a false Don Quixote and a false Sancho Panza from a different Don Quixote novel written by somebody else. And there's a classic all-time exchange between them. So that's Miguel de Cervantes, born September 29th, 1547, and Anne Rice, born October 4th, 1941. Pirates and stuff. Yeah, all right. Let's that's do crazy. a sponsor. Sponsor. Savudu okay. Universe mm -hmm. as a new sponsor and a new... And a new um, a thing. It's a new thing. Savudu so uh, has for a while been the online destination for science fiction and fantasy fans. All sorts of stories and news and opinion about science fiction and fantasy. But they're launching a new thing called Savudu Universe. And this is where you can sign up if you're a sci-fi or fantasy blogger to sign up to be a part of their community um, covering both sci-fi, fiction, fantasy as literature, but also in larger pop culture, literature, film, gaming, and more. So if you want to join the community, here's what you can do. Connect with other contributors. Um, you can enter contests, participate in question and answers with notables from the science fiction and fantasy world. Um, and you can then have your own content be featured by on Suvudu Universe's main page. So you can find new readers and have them access your content from a whole bunch of different sources. Um, the goal of Suvudu Universe is to reach new readers and to increase the discovery of science fiction and fantasy content across all publishers. Um, Which is, that's an important piece. Yeah. Uh, since Savudu and Savudu Universe are owned and operated by Random House, but it's not exclusively about uh, books that are published by Random House or about pushing Random House content. Yeah. So if you like to read about science fiction and fantasy, you should definitely check Savudu out. Um, and if you're interested in being... Um, you know, connecting with them as a blogger and contributor, check out universe.savudu.com, S-U-V-U-D-U.com, and uh, check out what the story is and uh, join, join if you're so inclined. So thanks so much to Savudu Universe for sponsoring the show. And you want to wrap up with new books? Yeah, let's do new books. New, new books. books. And new books. Uh, just as a little teaser, people, we have Bad Job Old Dudes Part 2. We do. In the works, but it's uh, it's going to take more than the amount. Are we of time on part we three of left. Bad Job Old? This is going to be a recurring feature. Yeah, I Clearly. think it's just going to be rolling. Bad Job Old Dudes. Yeah, all right. 
The so old dudes of publishing just keep giving us tell things us about to some talk new about. Books. So new books. Oh, man. I think I say this every week, but there's some <laughs> good stuff uh, out this week. And this is uh, a week of big ones that big people ones. have been looking forward to for a while. The first is Dr. Sleep by Stephen King. It is the uh, long-awaited, long-wished-for sequel to The Shining. And it's about the now middle-aged Dan Torrance, who was the young boy in The Shining. Um, and the very special 12-year-old girl that he has to save from a tribe of murderous paranormals. Uh, I haven't read this yet. I've seen tons of discussion and lots of uh, reviews of it, and certainly there is a good deal of excitement about a sequel to The Shining coming out. Everyone has an opinion on it. Um, the reviews seem to be pretty positive so far. They That's do. what I've seen. Yeah, yeah they, they do. Um, I haven't read The Shining in a couple of I've never decades. read it. I've only seen I think the movie. I was like 10 and my parents oh, did the thing. Oh, what? Why? I know. My parents did the thing of like, uh, read whatever you want and we trust that if you, you know, have questions or don't understand something right. that's happening in it, you'll ask us. And I mean, there is some stuff that goes down in The Shining that I was like, I don't even know how to ask a question <laughs> about this. <laughs> no, I still don't. Yeah. Uh, but Dr. Sleep is out now. Um, as always, the new books that we discuss on the show have already been published, and you can pick them up at your local bookstore or your library or download them. Another big release from this week is The Lowland by J- uh, Jhumpa Lahiri. Uh, like most of her books, it is set um, in India and America, and it's about two brothers that are connected by tragedy, uh, a, brilliant, a brilliant woman who is haunted by her past, a torn country, and a love that lasts beyond death. Uh, according to the blurb for it, it was also it's also a finalist for the 2013 Booker Prize, and this is a big literary moment of the year and the and, National Book Award. Long yes. listed for the National Book Award. Um, I'm seeing a lot of uh, sort of discussion that this might be the best novel of the mm. year. Um, it's certainly been one that people have been looking forward to for a long time, and I love a Jhumpa Lahiri short story. Yeah. Uh, I did not love the namesake, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm hearing a lot about this book that has me very much looking forward to trying one I'm of the no- novels again. I'm going to read this. It may not again. be soon, but I'm going to read this. Yeah, I'm going to read this, too. It's only a matter too. of time. Um, also, wait, I wait, think I we got can... one more hardback. Oh, yeah, I, 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 I sneaked saying, I think, one I think in. We can, I think we can expect to see the Lowlands oh, show up on um, the Morning Books Tournament of Books yeah, at the I end of the year. Yeah, I would think so. I would think so. I, I snuck one in on you. One oh. hard book. One hardback. Oh, I see. Um, Stanley Crouch has been working on a biography of Charlie Parker for, I think, more than a decade. Oh, wow. And the first volume of that biography came out this week called Kansas City Lightning, um, which is, first, an awesome title. Second, it's about a town that's dear to both of our hearts, Mm -hmm. Kansas City, um, about Charlie Parker's coming of age and early days as a jazz musician in 1930s and 40s Kansas City, which is an interesting place to be. Also. Oh, I'm going to read this book so hard. Yeah, so it's a biography of Charlie Parker. It's a big one. Stanley Crouch himself, long a prominent um, African-American critic and author, um, columnist for the Amsterdam News and written for the New Yorker and other places about jazz and jazz musicians and a whole variety of cultural topics. But um, I'm looking forward to this. This is another one where I'm not sure I'm going to get to it anytime soon. But on my, I'm definitely going to read this at some point in my long and mm-hmm. um, healthy life. The Kansas City Lightning. I might wait till the, all the volumes are. I don't even know how many volumes are going to be. There might be three. Ooh. That's the rumor. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's maybe sort of a coming of age, like, a peak, and a decline. I don't maybe know. Maybe they'll put it out like on audiobook with a jazz soundtrack. There you go. That's nice. Yeah. With it, I would like that. With some good narration. So I, I, that's Kansas City Lightning by Stanley Crouch, which is available now. Cool. And big paperback release this week, a book that um, both you and I loved. Yes. The, Round, the Roundhouse by Louise Erdrich. You know what? Um I was looking up pronunciations, and I this is on my list, so I don't know. I don't All know right. how you say this. We'll find out, though. We'll find out yeah, for you. Yeah, this was a big book of 2012, and Indeed. deservedly so. Um, it's set in 1988 on an Indian reservation in North Dakota, and the main character, Joe, is a teenager. When his mom comes home, she's been attacked one day, and she sort of goes into her room and won't come out and won't really talk about what happened to her. Um, the elders of their tribe are trying to solve the puzzle of who committed this crime against Joe's mother. Um, but Joe, being young and impulsive and very angry, sort of decides to take matters into his own hands and to conduct some investigations on his own and with his group of friends. Um, so it's uh, Erdrich's signature literary style, but also a mystery um, it, this is a beautiful but really yeah. sort of devastating book. 
It's a great book. Um, maybe my favorite novel last year. I, you oh. know, I don't have like a, li- a mm-hmm. ranking list pinned to my um, wall. Maybe I should. That'd be fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, definitely if you're an underrepresented part of America, reservation life, and um, God, she can write a sentence. Oh, boy. She really can. She that really was, can. <laughs> that was my first Erdrick. And it oh, was, really? Wow, that's yeah, it was incredible. Um, I had one of those light bulb, oh, this is what I've been missing Yeah, 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 moments. yeah. Plague of Doves, um, an earlier novel is also, I mean, I think all of her stuff is really mm-hmm. great. Um, let's end with just one quick tech thing. Yeah. So uh, this is a new story. You just linked to yeah, it I in just, Critical Linking. Yeah, I just saw it yesterday. This morning, um, Apple has applied for, is it a patent? Yeah, a patent. Yeah. They've applied for a patent for digital technology that will allow people to collect um, autographs on ebooks and other digital media using mm-hmm. a special app. Uh, so not the first that we've heard of someone attempting to solve this problem of like, what are authors supposed to sign now that right. a lot of readers are reading digitally? Um, I'm interested in the fact that Apple thinks this is a big enough deal that they're developing. Well, for what we should say about patents that that doesn't mean they have any intention of doing anything. True. It's more that let's put a stake in the ground in case we ever do want to do this. Mm-hmm. So, but um, I, 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 go ahead. I, essentially, you have an app on your phone for an ebook and the author has a book signing application and they sign it on their device and it flips through the cloud and then appears on your device right mm-hmm. that's basically how it works so it's not there would be a there would be a physical motion for every autograph so to speak it's not a stamp or just a right. you know downloading of an image file or something that pre-exists um I, this is some. This is no. This is all uh, hat no cattle to me. To use a phrase from from <laughs> oh, the agrarian agricultural world. metaphor. You know, like it's something that sounds kind of interesting. And yeah, signing ebooks. And I don't know. I think the appeal of an autograph is it, the, the physicality of it um, as much as anything. Yeah. I'm skeptical about how much readers really want this versus yeah. how much like publishers and authors think that readers want this. Um, it seems I understand, and it seems to me that readers have an impulse and a desire to carry something tangible away from an experience that they have with an author. And so if you go to a signing and you're not getting a hard copy of the book signed, you might want right. you might want some evidence and some like memento from that experience. Um, authors have mentioned to me on Twitter that people bring their e-readers and uh, some people have them sign the cover of their e-reader. And if you go to a lot of signings and you've got a collection of author autographs on yeah. your e-reader cover, that I can sort of get, I can get my head around how that works. Um, but I can take a like I can very easily take a hard copy of a signed book off my shelf and flip through it and read the inscription. And the books are right there for me to see and to remind me that I can do that. I, I personally don't have the impulse to flip through my e-reader to look at a signature on the digital title page yeah, of a digital know. book. Um, but I wonder... Are you, are you, well, let's, let's preface our skepticism. Are you a big yeah. autograph person? Do you care about that stuff um, in general? You know, if I that's have a, a no, con- that's a no. Well, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm no. thinking about the one, the signed copies that mean something to me are when the book has meant a lot to me, and or when I have a, some sort of a relationship with the author. Yeah, but in general, no. Yeah, so I don't. Maybe we're not the um, the power user. Like that, this might be interesting too. A couple interesting things about the patent application. The filing says that the quote unquote autograph can be. Not just a signature, but any digital media fit for storage uh, mm. on a device. So it could be uh, a vocal greeting of some kind. It could it's be cool. an image of some kind. Um, I don't. It could be yeah. a GIF just well, for so, you. Yeah, a cool a cool thing that I've heard about for hard copy signings is um, Maggie Stiefvater, who's a young adult author, does um, exclusive signed copies available through a local bookstore here in Richmond called The Fountain, because she lives mm-hmm. nearby. Um, so before one of her new titles comes out, the only place that people can pre-order a signed copy of the book is through The Fountain. And ah. then she she goes into the store and will sit down and do like several hundred books at once and sign them all, and she doodles in them. Mm-hmm. So maybe if you if you could get like a one of a kind original Maggie Steve Vodder <laughs> yeah, doodle, I guess in, that's something. But like, what are you going to do with it? It's in your ebook. You can't like tear the page out and put it on your wall. I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, this is kind of one. I think this is one of those. Autographs are a physical book thing, and we're seeing if it can be shoehorned into yeah, this new world, maybe, and maybe I mean, it can't be. I could see something like uh, authors having like merch tables. At yeah, well, events, that's interesting. The way that that you can go to the merch table at a concert and get. Like maybe you could get a poster that's a quote from the book, like one <laughs> yeah. of the one of the most well loved quotes from the book, and the author could sign that. You could put that on your wall instead of putting the signed book on your shelf if you're reading ebooks. Yeah, I'm not I, sure. I think we need to we need to get past this idea that we do the same thing to ebooks that right. we do to physical yeah, books. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, let's end the show there with our consternation and skepticism <laughs> of a new technology. Confusion. I know that's shocking. Uh, you can find us <laughs> bookwrite.com. We write there all the time about books and the reading life. I'm Jeff O'Neill, you can find me on Twitter at Reading Ape. You are I'm Rebecca Shinsky, and you can find me on Twitter at Rebecca Shinsky, S C H I N S K Y. And if you've got a comment for the show, a question, an idea, a scathing indictment, or a glowing review, just for our eyes only, you can shoot us an email at podcast at bookriot.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that's super helpful for the show, especially if it's a good one. Uh, you can follow Book Riot on Twitter. You can find the show notes to this show and many others at bookriot.com backslash podcast. You can forward also slash, forward, forward slash. slash. I always mess that up. I don't know. I, I've never, I'm going to have to have that part of my brain removed. <laughs> <laughs> bookriot.com uh, slash podcast. We also have a short survey. It's seven questions. It'll take you less than two minutes to complete. That just tells us a little bit about you and will help us find the best and most relevant sponsors for the show. So we can bring you more great folks like Savudu and more great books like Mindy Kaling's Is Everyone Hanging Out Without Me? Uh, that link to that survey will be in the show notes as well which is bookriot.com forward slash forward slash all right let's call that a show rebecca we will talk to you later bye jeff bye